0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive
1: needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
2: Fighting the erasure of gentrification. We need to sit down at the table and make sure that everybody is accounted for at that table. I'm Jade
3: Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Today on Midday Edition, a special exploring the impact of gentrification.
4: People move, things shift, infrastructure changes, but what makes it devastating is the loss of culture. And that's really where I kind of center my conversations and my advocacy around gentrification is preserving and protecting.
3: How urban development is pushing people out of their communities and the ideas on how neighborhoods can grow without displacement. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive
1: needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
3: Gentrification is one of the most complex issues currently facing American cities. For some, it brings revitalization but for others, it means displacement. KPBS took on this controversy last night in a community forum called Fighting Erasure, a community conversation on gentrification and displacement in San Diego. KPBS race and equity reporter, Christina Kim moderated a panel discussion about the consequences of gentrification and what steps need to be taken to make sure urban development is equitable. The panel included Isaac Martin, professor of urban studies and planning at UC San Diego. Julie Corrales, a policy advocate for the environmental health coalition and Tau Baraka, activist and owner of Imperial Barbershop in San Diego's Encanto neighborhood. Christina Kim starts the forum with a comment from Josephine Talamantes, an activist, historian, and one of the founders of Chicano Park, who lays out what's at stake when gentrification happens. There are those uh, in the spectrum that say no gentrification at all. And there are those that are saying, let's, let's improve the community Let's let's make it better, but yet yeah, let's let's make it safe and let's make it improved so that the residents can stay here and benefit from the improve, the you know the improvements rather than improve and then the residents are kicked out. That you know that why, why that's then we turn into another gas lamp district. We don't wanna be a gas lamp district. We don't wanna be Little Italy. We wanna be our residents that live here. We wanna protect the historical nature of Barrio Logan. And we also want our small businesses to 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 advance. And we want industry to continue to do what it does for the nation.
5: Julie, I'm gonna turn to you first. I know that you live in Barrio Logan, a place that's really become synonymous with this word gentrification, this process. But I also wanna make sure we're all on the same page. Cause I think gentrification, <laughs> we're all talking about it, but what are we really talking about? So. Julie, how do you define and talk about gentrification, especially in your neighborhood?
4: First of all, I gotta say I love Josie. It's una poderosa, and a mentor of mine. She's incredible, um, and, and uh, but but gentrification to me and the way I see it is is really at the like at the heart of it. I wouldn't say the root. At the heart of it is loss of culture. You know, like people that you know, your neighbors leave the places that you love to go, like to, to visit are gone. And I think that's what makes it devastating, right? Because people move, right? Things shift. Uh, infrastructure changes, but what makes it devastating is the loss of culture. And that's really where I kind of center um, my conversations and my advocacy around gentrification is preserving and protecting.
5: Right. So it's not necessarily about opposing change, but really about preservation. Tao, mm-hmm. You, this is gentrification is a huge topic at your barbershop. We've talked about that, that is what people are talking about. So, you're seeing it right on Imperial Avenue and 65th. So, how do you define gentrification and how are you seeing it play out in your daily life?
2: I see gentrification as a double edged sword. I think everybody wants change. We have to evolve eventually, but we want to evolve with having our culture still intact. And unfortunately, sometimes with gentrification, the culture aspect of what has already been leaves the community, and uh, and then you have new people here that's going uh, to take over the community, and that just it kind of kills off what we are trying to plan, what we would like to see happen with the change, with going through this evolution. So gentrification is a good and a bad thing. So um, I'm ready for this conversation tonight.
5: Well, I gotta ask Isaac as well. I mean, you teach gentrification, so that's a little different. You're really actively trying to define it. So when you are teaching gentrification, how are you describing it, especially for maybe students who don't live in neighborhoods that are experiencing this process?
6: Sure. Well, first I want to say I teach about gentrification. I don't teach about how to do, do gentrification. Um, but, but uh, just for, for for clarification, but um, gentrification. Uh, the word means that the gentry are coming to the neighborhood. And that's, a, of course, a word from England that means uh, that, you know, that social class right below the nobility. So there's a couple ideas baked in there in the word. One is the idea that new people are coming into the neighborhood. Another is the, the idea that those people have more resources, more money in particular, but also you know more of other kinds of social class-related status, uh, access to opportunity than people in the neighborhood have. Um, and the third is this idea that, that when these newcomers, the gentry, come into the neighborhood, they're bringing those resources with them, and, and they're bringing new investment into the neighborhood. Part of, part of, I think, what I see as the double-edged sword that Tao described is this idea that gentrification can come in, and uh, it happens in places often that are really starved of investment, sometimes that were quite deliberately starved of investment, and that really need a, a new infusion of resources. But it also can have the effect that Julie described, where when newcomers come in, that prices out people who've lived there for a long time, and then can displace community institutions, can uh, change the whole feeling of a place in a way that makes it so that, you know, when you go home, it's not home anymore.
5: Mm. And these are processes we're seeing statewide. But as we mentioned, San Diego, according to a 2020 study, is the 14th most intensely gentrifying metro in the country. So what does that really mean, Isaac? And And how did we get here? How does San Diego, the metro area, the neighborhoods we're talking about get to be so ripe for this process of gentrification?
6: There are, of course, a lot of things going on. I think that the the big process here is much bigger than any individual neighborhood and much bigger than any individual city. Uh, Gentrification is happening um, all across the U.S. Um, I wouldn't swear to that ranking that we're 14th. I don't know if we're higher, I don't know (laughs) if we're lower, Um, but but it's it's a familiar conversation that's happening um, all over. And it's happening in part because in in major metros, especially in California, um, uh, rent is going up uh, because uh, more people want to move here and uh, faster than housing is being built to house them. Part of what that means then is is middle and upper income people coming into San Diego, or moving from other parts of San Diego, end up uh, moving into neighborhoods where they're they're pricing out potentially people who've lived there for a long time. Um, so uh, so it has an incredible amount to do just with the the basic dynamics of the the housing market.
4: But Isaac, don't you think that it also has to do with um, you know redlining, right? These old like historic racist land use policies that set us up to be here. And I, I see this big link to like white flight and now like this reurbanization of white folks trying to try to get back in, right? Cuz for whatever reasons, right? Um but they're they're coming back into the urban core that's that's been neglected. So do you, do you think that's a component? Do you see that phenomena like as part of it? I,
6: I absolutely. So so redlining, right? We're talking about this process where where um First, uh, realtors and then the federal government drew, literally drew red lines around certain neighborhoods, including Varia Logan back in the day, in the 1930s, mm-hmm. um, and said, you know, this place, not a great place for investment, so we're not going to underwrite loans here, um, and did this for explicitly racist reasons, among other reasons. That process is part of why Barrio Logan, among other neighborhoods, was so starved for resources for so long. And the cruel irony, right, is that um, the fact that that redlining is no longer happening, that Barrio Logan is no longer seen as off-limits for investment, means that when the investment comes in, it's coming in in the hands of now uh, often um, white people who, in whose favor, there used to be discrimination in the past in in their favor, right? So it's, it's a really cruel irony.
5: Julie, I want to jump in there because, you know, as we just said, Barrio Logan was formally redlined only then to have freeways tear it through and really kind of be the symbol of environmental racism across the, you know, across the state, across the country. But as you're seeing investment come in, how are you seeing gentrification really at work in Barrio Logan? How do you see it and what are the stories you're hearing from the people that live there?
4: the saddest part is, is that the community has been working for decades, decades and decades to to make Barrio Logan healthy, to clean up the air, to create more parks, to mitigate all that toxic pollution from the environmental racism. And now we're seeing that folks aren't around to reap the benefits of it, right? Like we're seeing folks have to leave. Um, we had a, a member of our community planning group um, Edick, who was amazing I mean super involved have been fighting with environmental health coalition for decades to to make change and he got priced out right before you know we got our CLT right before we got our new park right before we you know the port passed um, the, the the policies that they're working on to clean up the air so we're seeing this happen over and over people are are, are being forced to leave before they really get to reap the benefits we see it again in the loss of culture um, a lot of uh, businesses that we love, uh, restaurants. all the art! The art is leaving. There's there's hardly any independent, autonomous art galleries left in the barrio, um, and it's it's devastating. It hurts. It's not the same even from five years ago. It's the feel is different, and it might be more palpable to outsiders, but it you know we're losing our flavor for it, and it's it's sad.
5: Tao, I want to bring you in here. Can you tell us a little bit about Encanto and Skyline, these areas where the rent is all of a sudden increasing? What are you seeing in terms of changes?
2: Well, Skyline and and, Encanto, I grew up in Skyline. I've been here basically all my life. and have a business in Encanto. And uh, what you're seeing now with this high rent is, uh, well, high leasing and even a, a home purchase. Our young Caucasian uh, people uh, a lot? A lot of military also, and upper some type of some upper middle class also. I'm starting to see a, a kind of a change in my barbershop also with the clientele. You know, I'm going from mainly cutting Hispanic and uh, African American hair to now I'm cutting Caucasian hair and I'm cutting uh, Asian hair. We all we do have an Asian population in this area, but you can actually see the change, and you can see who the new Home buyers are in this community. uh, As you, as these people walk down the street, as you see them in the store, or you may even bump uh, bump into them at the gas station. So it is a change, and uh, and the change has happened pretty rapidly as we speak.
5: Julie, how? Yeah, I mean, what is it? What do you stand to lose when you start to see those changing faces? You start to see businesses lose. Like, how does a community respond to that?
4: You know, it's funny. I I remember two years ago, Senora Rodriguez, I believe her name was, she was a a longtime activist that would, like, knock on doors, helped David Alvarez get elected. I mean, like, she was a pillar in the community. She lived on, what is that, like, 20th and, like, Imperial, this little house right across the street from the Marisco Place Colosito. Everybody knew her. And uh, something about her house. Somebody bought her house, and she had lived there 30, 40 years. And the community gathered. We had meetings in the back of Golosito. What can we do? How can we raise money? Community leaders showed up. We were, you know, reaching out to the to the seller, to the you know the new buyer. Can can we try to get money together for her to to buy her property? And it didn't happen, right? It did. There's there's no policies in place to protect people uh, like Senora Rodriguez. And so she she lost her she lost her place to live, and she moved out to like, you know. I think it was lemon grove or something. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, we're, these are the types of things that, that we're seeing and it and it hurts. So we're not only losing, you know, we're losing co- community members, but we're losing pillars. We're losing, poli- you know, political power. She was a powerhouse, right? We're losing, um, it, you know, artists. Um, it's, it's, we're losing the future generation of, of folks who are going to care for intent for Chicano park. Um, so, uh, it's, it's definitely scary. It's We're, we're fighting, we're in, we're in the struggle. It almost st- starts to think, and I know we've chatted
5: about this, this idea of like gentrification kind of leading to a process of diaspora. So if your community pillars can no longer live in Barrio Logan, in Encanto, and they're being pushed out. And I mean, I wanna talk about in San Diego, black renters are the most cost burden in the entire country. That's according to a Zillow study, meaning that like black renters here pay more for rent out of their income than anywhere else. So when we're thinking about communities being pushed out, you know, to Spring Valley, to La Mesa, to Lemon Grove, how do you think about that? As people who are working within the community to keep a core, do you think of gentrification almost as like your center spreading or is it a complete loss?
2: Wow, I I, I don't, I would to call it a complete loss, but we are, we. We are definitely pushing people out because of the pricing and, and the uh, and the rent. It's it's unfortunate that these things happen as we evolve, especially through the gentrification process. Uh, even with the businesses in themselves here, you know, when you see that that gentrification process happen in these communities, you wish all of the investors and the people that are coming in to start this change would actually sit down with community and have something going forward together to where we can save a lot of these businesses. We can make sure that a lot of people aren't priced out. We can make sure that we're gonna have affordable housing within this community to where people, if they have to move, they can still be part of this community and this culture that we have. So, you know, it it is very rough right now for people. I see a lot of my customers now they're moving to El Cajon City. They're moving to Spring Valley. They're driving from those places still to come here because this was a base on which they used to live. But now they are also priced out of their own community, which they grew up in. Yeah,
4: I think it, I see that too, uh, Tal. I see that you know folks are forced to leave and they come back. They find ways to make their way back, and you bump into them at a restaurant or you know at a local bar or you know border ex or or you know at the parque. Um, so you know people try to retain that connection. But um, it's not as strong. And I think we do, you know, we, yes, we, we spread out, but we do lose a lot because, you know, especially, you know, in Barrio Logan, it's, it's one of the only places where we have our history and our, our, power and our politics just in front of our face all the time right it's a it's a it's a school the parque is a school for our youth because we don't get that knowledge in our educational system in our public school system we're not taught um you know the our our struggle as a rasa as a people and in barrio Logan you get that so when you start pulling us away from our core we lose our culture we lose our history we lose our roots um you know and and um yeah it's it's definitely a blow it becomes a blow to us culturally and politically because you know we're stronger together, and that history informs our politics and says we got you know it, it's it becomes easier to assimilate and forget you know folks still in the struggle. So I think we lose a lot with being separated and and spread apart. We're survivors, right? Like we 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 um we find a way to. We, we fight our erasure constantly, um, but it becomes harder when our pillars, when our hubs are, are fractured.
3: Coming up, the KPBS Community Forum on Gentrification continues.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche,
1: or hohenmotors.com.
3: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Our discussion about gentrification and urban development continues in the KPBS community forum, Fighting Erasure. KPBS reporter Christina Kim is joined in this discussion by Julie Corrales, a policy advocate for the Environmental Health Coalition, Tau Baraka, an activist and the owner of Imperial Barbershop in San Diego's Encanto neighborhood, along with UC San Diego professor Isaac Martin. In this part of the discussion, Martin contextualizes the recent history of gentrification in America and why the issue has become as complicated as it is today.
6: So this is, I mean, this is in a way all of American urban history is is people uh, move around to where they can afford the rent. And I want to note also in that in that comment. It's a story of a person who's worried that they're um, changing the character of a neighborhood by gentrifying it, but they're also telling a story about how they their neighborhood was gentrified. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's it's easy to think of um, gentrification in Vario Logan because it's such a such a rich community history in such a specific place to think about it as as um, the ways in which it's you know affecting the the cultural preservation of the Chicano community there and and community institutions and all that. Um, but it's also the case that gentrification is, happens to white working class communities. It happens to uh, uh, happen has happened historically much less often to black working class communities, only because investment has so rarely ever flowed there. Um, uh, uh, so, so um, the, what this uh, listener is describing, right, is like a chain of gentrification, where where someone who's priced out of one neighborhood, then moves somewhere else because it's what they can afford, and I think that. That is an enormous part of the story, uh, is is as prices rise, people always in the housing market have limited options and are making choices among limited options. One of the things I just want to add on that is, and we can talk about this later when we talk about solutions, but one of the things I take away from stories like this is that the solutions to gentrification uh, and the displacement that comes from gentrification Whatever solutions we find, they can't just be solutions that happen in the places that are experiencing gentrification, because a lot of the root causes are outside that neighborhood and are spilling into it.
4: But I, I, I would like to add to that, because this is where it gets a little touchy, right? And this is where like the uncomfortable conversations happens, because you're right, gentrification is happening everywhere. People are getting displaced everywhere. But there is the role of white privilege, right? And white supremacy that then then filters in because so for example, this person saying, you know, I can't afford to live in Ocean Beach. And so they're having to find another place. Okay, so where are you gonna go? City Heights? Southeast? logan okay you know maybe you don't have a choice but then what we see is folks come in with a mentality of you know this is my new neighborhood i want to see what i want to see here you know i, re- I remember you know being in the radio and having family get togethers and folks you know some of the things that made my childhood having these family parties and the kid falls asleep these family parties and you know the cumbia is going till one in the morning and the community that I live in or that, you know, we're used to understands that. And Mm -hmm. then you see, you see, you know, different gentry coming in and then you start the cops start showing up. Right. Right. And then you start, you know, we're walking, we're at the park and the cops start showing up because the youth is at the park. Right. Or we see um, getting complaints because we got, you know, new landlords and yeah, they let you stay. Right. If you're lucky and they don't kick you out to renovate, then you start getting complaints from their new neighbors that, you know, don't like your kids outside in a diaper, you know, or whatever it is, these things. So that's where where the white supremacy and the white privilege comes in. And so and it's it's difficult to talk about. And I know it's uncomfortable, but I think it has to be said if if you have no option but to move to the hood, to move to the barrio, you know, approach it with this, I'm I'm the outsider here, right? Like assimilate to that community and contribute. You know, don't go to the to the new eatery where you feel comfortable at. Frequent the restaurants that have been there for 20 years so they can stay open. Right. So 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 all that to say that, yes, white people are being displaced too, but when you make the conscious choice to move into a black or brown neighborhood, you have to take into account that you could disrupt it in a in a very serious way and, and to make a conscious effort not to.
5: Isaac actually yeah. uh, testified at the California Task Force for Reparations yesterday, and this was a topic of conversation. Isaac, would you just share a little bit more? I know one of the issues that came up is that in an area that is gentrifying, or in an area that is adjacent to an area that's gentrifying, you actually see an increase in police calls as well as interactions. Can you just share a little bit about that aspect of gentrification and policing?
6: Sure. So the, this phenomenon that Julia's described, where you know n- new neighbors come in and then they're, they they're so unfamiliar with and so disrespectful of um, the kind of traditions and, and ways of the neighborhood. Um, that they might call the cops on people for things that everybody who has been living there for a long time knows are just it's not a nuisance it's part of the culture of the place um that uh, that story uh, is is you know not unique to variario Logan it's it's g- heard in many other communities of color that are that are undergoing this this um, experience um, there has been some research to try to quantify right is how much do police calls increase when you're when you're adjacent to a gentrifying area? We don't have enough studies of it yet, and I would love to see more research on that in, in San Diego to really put put numbers on how much this happens. Um, but there are a couple different things that that uh, have been documented here. One is the new neighbors come in and uh, and uh, as Julie was describing, describing they might even call the cops on the on the the longstanding neighbors who who made the neighborhood what it is. Um, a second process that that also has been documented is sometimes it's uh, police taking initiative and doing stuff preemptively adjacent to a gentrifying neighborhood out of some idea that they're going to somehow uh, um, a- attract investment to a place. And, and so this has been documented. There's a very good study of New York City that showed that in, in some neighborhoods, it seemed like the police had um, had some idea about where the where the gentry were going to go next. And even before the, the gentrification started, they were in there making more arrests to um, to try to make it feel safer for people who didn't actually belong to the neighborhood yet.
5: I have a community question, actually, from Enrique Arcilla, which I think really showcases another dynamic, which is like young professionals and students who maybe come into a community. So he asked, where should students and emerging professionals live if they can't afford areas like Claremont, but don't want to contribute to gentrification? Should they just stay in expensive areas in order to protect? (laughs) How
2: um. <laughs> yeah. I would I would say I would say you you know we'll welcome you. It'll be welcome if they if they could if they want to come to Southeast San Diego or in Canto. If they but if they come, be a part or try to be part of the fabric of the culture when you do get here. You know, uh, we love young intelligent minds coming into our communities, but we would also like you to be coming to be part of that fabric also of coming here understanding the culture, respecting the culture, and being a part of it yourself.
4: Yeah. I mean I, I think that that's such a difficult question, right? Because um, you know, nobody deserves to be rent burdened. Um you know communities and and you know gentrifying locations black and brown communities are especially remburdened um so is it like oh you know you don't have to be rent burdened because you can come over here and then where do we go right so there's all these like nuances to it but i i agree with, with with um what tal said if if you are coming you know be prepared to be part of that fabric and to contribute in real ways i mean there's there's you know, a a white, more affluent person has political power that some of our folks know. Right. Like you come with true privilege. So then use that to advance uh, to to get involved in community issues, to get involved in community organizations, to support local businesses and use that power improvements to protect and preserve the community. And I might be asking a lot, you know, that's 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 a whole, you know, paradigm shift whatever right like you're thinking about things differently but um that i think that's an amazing question that it's even being asked because you can you can have that conversation yeah you can be an ally right come as an ally
2: that's right
4: come as an ally but i want to flip it a little bit sometimes
5: the gentrification isn't coming from the outside it can be coming from the inside it's something that we're hearing a lot about hentification this idea of like all of a sudden, maybe you grew up in a neighborhood, but you are now part of a different economic class. Maybe you went to college, you got that good job, and you have money, you have investment, you have different political capital. But one of our listeners shared a thought on this, this emerging term. Um, this comes from Rafael Perez. He's a realtor who lives in Sherman Heights who expressed some cynicism about the notion of performative gentrification. Let's take a listen.
2: It depends on how you define gentrification and kind of what re- Abilities come with hentification if it's just a you know a minority person of color owned business in a community I, I don't know that that's enough for it to be an absolute benefit but if there's kind of a an expectation that it's somebody who's going to come back and, and really try to contribute to the community that's been there for decades um, you know then I think that that type of hentification could could slow the <laughs> slow the dominoes from falling so fast and, and try to save a few from falling over
5: Julie, I know gentification is on your mind and not just because of shows like Vida and Hentified. All I can always think about is like that one scene where they're playing like loteria and it's like hipster loteria. But yeah. what do we, what do we mean when we say gentification? How are you defining it? And how are you seeing it? I
4: love those shows, by the way. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, you know, uh, that's, that's such a Juicy, meaty question. Because for me, it's around like, who's allowed to profit off of our culture, you know? Mm-hmm. Because they've been selling our cultura in Old Town for a long time, and we weren't owning those shops, right? So there is something beautiful about us being to, able to profit off of our own cultura, our own products, um, and being able to sustain our families, right? And to be able to stay in our neighborhoods because we're we're able to to pay our rents um, and 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 keep that money for ourselves. But um, it's funny because even within the video, even with our own circles, there's this divide. You know, these like folks are like, "You're harming the community," and like, "Wait a minute, we're promoting the community. We're giving folks opportunity," and that's always a discussion. But you know, w- when we've seen gentrification hurt us, yeah, it's people coming in, right, and 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 bringing in um, different folks and and that want to then live here, right. Um, and not providing that education component. And I think Tao hit it on the nail. It's like these businesses have to um, think about their impact uh, people over profits An organization that I'm, I'm part of was very active in prior to joining EHC. We, we created a list of like, what does it mean to be a gentrifying business? Right. And like the number one was like, you're not com- contributing to community. But uh, actually the number one was the number one point was, do you serve the current community? Do your products do your services do your food are they for the people here or is, is no one here going to shop there so number one okay if you're taking care of us and we want your product in the community then okay let's let other folks come into and enjoy it are you giving back to the community uh if, as you're getting successful are you donating to the community garden are you you know helping the youth are you hiring locally right so there's things that these businesses can do to um to help the community and to really like it it impede gentrification right um but i I would like to add this because we've seen this happen in the barrio there's amazing chicanos that do great things for the neighborhood they bring artists they brought they've brought a a whole a whole space a whole Mm -hmm. um renaissance to the neighborhood and they give other people opportunities and jobs and, you know, artists platforms. And then they're so successful that the landlords say, okay, well, I can rent this out for four times the rent now. So it's it's your time to leave. So I think, you know, we, we focus on the hentificator, hint I guess that's a word, right? The person that's that the business owner, but it's not them at the end of the day, it's the landlord. It's a landlord who chooses to raise the rent. It's the landlord who choose chooses to harvest all that they didn't sow. So I think we have to reframe that conversation when we're talking about gentrification, because it's not the business owners who, who are doing something wrong. It's the landlords. Tao, do you want to weigh
5: in here? I know you've said gentrification is a double-edged sword, and I think Julie's really highlighted the way that this idea of even investing in your community can be a double-edged sword if the if the realtor developers and the landlords are then going to sow the profit of the work you're doing, how do you then strike that balance?
2: I agree 100% with Julie, she was right on point. Uh, I, I'm seeing that right now in Southeast San Diego, we're actually seeing a, a price hike in these landlords going up on a lot of these businesses and a lot of businesses aren't able to survive, especially after this COVID thing. It's unfortunate that we have to go through this route uh, uh, I believe land, a lot of these landlords are preparing for the gentrification process without pricing these people are preparing their property now to be sold by other, to other investors or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm just seeing a whole bunch of disarray in my community to where I'm still myself trying to figure out where I may lie within the, within the premise of this whole entire scheme too. So um, uh, it's unfortunate that we're seeing this, but it's, it's, a, it's a reality that we all must face. Like I said, I would like to see those who are bringing these new developments in, these new things, these new resources and everything to actually come to the community and let's do just a a sit down and an overview of what's here, why is this thing so important to us culturally and what can we do to preserve what we have and you know, even the the people that will be priced out. Let's see if we can try to do things to make certain things better. I, I don't have the 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 answers to everything. But I know just uh, it's it's free to be fair. And unfortunately, we don't have people out there trying to be fair with this process in mind.
3: Still ahead, the conclusion of the KPBS Community Forum on Gentrification in San Diego.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad
1: we invite you to visit one of the Hohen carlsbad dealerships or Hohenmotors.com.
3: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. In the final part of the KPBS Community Forum on Gentrification, host Christina Kim asks her panelists Isaac Martin, Julie Corrales, and Tau Baraka to identify solutions for communities at grips with gentrification. We start with Tau.
2: I think pretty much the only solution for that is, like I said, we have to go head to head with the people that are bringing these investments in to, to possibly grow this area. We need to sit down at the table and make sure that everybody is accounted for at that table uh, it, through conversation, through by any means, actually. And um, uh, like I said, unfortunately, past history shows that those types of things never happen through the gentrification process, which mm-hmm. all also always push people out. So where do we stand? Do we have a place within the society to where we can stand a little stronger than we've had in the past, looking at current past history uh, of the of the displacement, especially of our elders right now? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, you know, I, I I don't know if there's a true solution for this at all, except for discussing because money is power power is money unfortunately in this society and when the and when people come in with that type of money resources and power uh, a lot of them don't want to hear from what they they may consider us as peasants they don't want to hear from the past culture or the people that has preserved the culture over here they're just trying to see change and the bottom line is the dollar bill Mm -hmm. so i don't i don't know where to go with with that
5: Isaac, can you weigh in here a little bit in terms of not, of not of solutions, but just of does gentrification always lead to displacement? Are those two things so interwoven or are there ways that and examples that other cities have somehow combated that, allowed for investment that doesn't allow for displacement or cultural loss?
6: Gentrification certainly doesn't need to uh, cause dire- uh, displacement directly. And I think that it's useful here to think about a couple different um, ways that displacement happens. So one, we've been talking about eviction, um, and California has moved in the direction of better protections for renters. Um, so uh, the the state just cause eviction law, a step in the right direction. More protections for 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 renters will kind of help mitigate the risk of people actually getting kicked out to make way for for. Um, you know, people who can afford more. But there's another more subtle process that happens, which is people people move for all kinds of reasons in in their lives, right? And part of what gentrification can do is make it when you move, make it so that you can't find another foothold in the same neighborhood. So you're not moving because the gentry moved in, you're moving because your family's growing or you're going to school or you lost your job and you can't afford the rent in your current place. Um, but, uh, but when you move, the next place you find isn't going to be as close to home as it would have been um, because the places close to home uh, are no longer affordable to you. Um, that's harder to fight. And the, the key things there, I'm, I want to highlight a couple of things that um, I think are important. One is so much of this is about uh, people's incomes and just um, raising the floor in incomes and making it so that people can afford, to, can afford uh, better, more options in the housing market. Um, it's absolutely, absolutely critical. Um, a big part of displacement happens when people lose a job, for example. A second thing is, uh, I just—it seems to me that a part of the solution—and this is this is going to sound perhaps strange or counterintuitive—but um, we have to build more housing for the gentry in already gentrified places. Um, and and uh, and uh, part of what happens is people spill out of those places because they can't afford them anymore, but they can afford much more than the people in the neighborhoods they're moving into. Um, and I think if we want to prevent that kind of uh, serial, that ripple effect displacement, part of the solution to gentrification in Barrio Logan is going to have to happen outside of Barrio Logan. Part of the solution to gentrification in the Southeast is going to have to happen outside Encanto. It's going to have to happen in, in places far away where, where in higher income places to keep higher income people there. <laughs> Uh, uh so that they don't come flooding into to places where they'll displace others
5: i'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to julie but I, there is one question i want to put out there is like how do you achieve that without then embedding segregation and not having mixed income communities
6: i uh think that the key thing here is not to keep people out of neighborhoods or force people to live in neighborhoods they don't want to be in. It's true that gentrification sometimes can have the effect of integrating a neighborhood that's gentrifying, and, and then it segregates again as the, the lower income people of color get forced out. So I think you know, a solution for stability would give everyone more options rather than this kind of ripple effect that we have.
5: So Julie has been instrumental in actually driving forth the Barrio Logan Community Plan, which passed City Council just yesterday and is the first community plan in San Diego to actually have measures that are anti-displacement to address the gentrification. So Julie, you're in it, you are working this. So what are some policies or solutions that you're seeing that are really focused on anti-displacement from within Barrio Logan, from within the area that
4: is gentrifying? Thanks so much, Christina, for bringing that up, because, you know, I feel you, Tao. Like, people say that all the time, and it's heartbreaking. It's hopeless. There's nothing we can do. And there is, you know, people don't like to hear this, but but gentrification is policy created. It's policy that redlined. It's policy that divested. You know, I think it's like 5% of all diff fees since the 1980s have come south of the eight. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, we're not getting any infrastructure investments. This is all policy. Policy can fix it. It's just so like this knowledge is so esoteric and it's like so far away from people and it's like that's that's why I love Environmental Health Coalition because we work to like bring it to the community like come on y'all let's sit around like like Tao said let's sit around the table and let's talk about solutions and not in some crazy technical way like let's like nuts and bolts like let's let's make this accessible and there are policies that can do that in the Barrio Logan plan for example um, we increased the um, we worked really hard we wanted more but um, we were able to increase the required uh, amount of affordable units that a developer has to build a new development from so citywide, it's 10%. And right now we're not even there quite yet, because there's, there's some tiering going on. But citywide policy, 10% of new units have to be affordable units. In Barrio Logan, it will now have to be 15%. And there was also some great anti-displacement policies put in there. where like, if someone has to move because of new development, they get some very robust financial um, help to find a place and landlords uh, and developers are required to help them find it. You can't say, here's the money and get out. You have to help them find homes. You cannot begin construction until they're relocated. It also gives right of first refusal to the people that were displaced to move back to the affordable units. And it reserves 75% of all affordable units for folks that live in the community. So these are the kind of like innovative type of things that'll help folks stay. But I totally, I I 100% agree with what Isaac is saying. We have to have, you know, that, that those different levels of affordability, even in barrio, because those, professionals that are coming back, right? Those Chicanos that want to be in Barrio, but, you know, they have a great degree and they're, they, you know, they have a great job, but they want to be among, where are they going to live? Are they going to take, you know, the single moms, you know, naturally occurring right. affordable housing? No, let's build for them too. Um, Just make sure that, because as you build market rate, the comparable rates of rents around it are going to rise because, and I'm just going to drop y'all some knowledge right now. If you're listening, pay attention to this. the rent gap, right? Like the rent gap. So what if uh, if, uh, if my, my house where I live right now, two bedroom, right? I'm paying 2000. But if somebody builds a new two bed, three bedroom right next door to me, and they're renting it out for 4,000, that's a $2,000 rent gap. And so developers are gonna be like, oh, I can get like, look at that. that's like, that's all, you know, I can come up. That's so the higher the rent gap, the more um, the more enticing it is for folks to come in and take over the naturally occurring affordable housing. You know, the little, the little houses where I live at, right, where we live at and make them make them new because they can, they can, you know, close that gap. Rent control has been proven effective and people go rent control doesn't solve the housing crisis. It's not meant to, right? We're passing all these laws to encourage building, which is great, right? We need that. But rent control is not meant to stop the housing crisis. It's meant to stop displacement. And for what it's supposed to do, it's very successful. We need rent control, and we need it at two percent, right? We need low rent control, not AB. What's in right now with AP 1482? It can be up to ten percent every year. You know, if you're if you're if you're paying thousand dollars, that's three hundred dollars in three years. That's still displacement rate. So we need better rent control and policies to allow people to build and then you you bounce that out right you you build housing for people that are coming in for all the different kinds of gentry and you're building affordable for folks to stay if they want to stay you're helping them stay um so those policies are important what we don't have in the plan is policies against house flipping, because we see this in, in the in the barrios and in the hoods. This is how they do it. They come in and they close that rep gap, right? They kick you out of your apartment. They renovate it real pretty. And then you see it on Craigslist for like five, six hundred dollars more than you were paying. Right. that um, that is a business model. And, you know, it's it's completely legal. But should it be right? There's there's in San Francisco and Oakland and even in L.A., there are laws that, that prohibit that we're say if you're going to if you're going to renovate this house as a responsible landlord you have to show that the repairs are needed and you have to house the person that, the people that are living there while you make those repairs and then you got to let them back. No, Julie, that was really helpful and I and I think you're really
5: outlining two points of view, right? Like we often focus on homeowners and home ownership, but I think what you're really bringing to the table is when thinking about displacement, we have to think about renters and how many of our different community members are actually renters. I do wanna bring in some of our community comments. One, it's definitely resonating with folks. You know, we've got Tim who says, we need home ownership opportunities at all levels. $800,000 for a median price is insane. Um, But we also have some questions. So we got someone from YouTube saying, realistically, could communities take steps to encourage home sellers to consider more than just the highest bidder when it comes to deciding who to sell to?
6: Uh, I'm, I'd frankly be worried about a policy like that to the extent that it opens the door for uh, sellers to, for example, um, discriminate based on race, uh, which is the ugly history of American housing markets. I think we need really robust civil rights enforcement. Um, and uh, and um, so figuring out how to thread that needle would be, would be tough. I do think um, uh, a policy that could be very much part of a solution is something called a community land trust. Where uh, when people um, creates opportunities for people to purchase a home um, with a long term lease, uh, but the land itself is held in a not for profit uh, uh, um, organization that's accountable to a community board, and that holds the land in perpetuity, so that when that person leaves, they don't then go and flip the house and sell it to the highest bidder from outside the community. That they that they um, there is some constraint on the on the prices they they sell at and. Uh, and something like a community land trust could be effective. I, I'd, I'd be interested in, in in seeing more of that. Uh, it's a challenging thing to do, but, um, but there's a lot of sort of models of it.
5: So I want to also bring in another question that harkens back to something we were speaking to earlier. Darlene Newcomb says, how do we, fa-? so she's really asking something based on maybe moving into a gentrifying area, from a place where she's not part of that community. And she says, how do we foster and encourage being part of the fabric of a culture of a neighborhood? So what are ways that we can foster that kind of dialogue, even if it is an uncomfortable conversation? How do people engage with that?
2: I I would say, you know, come to find out what organizations are doing, what in the community, see exactly where she fits in at and, uh, and try her best foot at that shoe and, uh, hopefully she can you know she can be able to uh, you know foster what's actually going on over here uh we we, it, we we we're not we're not telling everybody that we don't want you over here but we all but, we, but when you do come and if you do come, you have to be part of this fabric. You have to be part of the culture. You have to get involved with what's going on in the community, whether it's the little sports leagues, whether it's uh, the, these things that we're talking about here with the gentrification and are all the stuff with the schools too. So um, just think about truly uh, what do you want to, where, where you want to be when you do move in these communities. Where do you want to stand and how do you want people to perceive you when you do come over here? We would like you to be part of this culture and community if you do come.
3: Thanks for joining this special midday edition broadcast of the KPBS community forum, Fighting Erasure, a community conversation on gentrification and displacement in San Diego. The discussion was moderated by KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim. Panelists include Isaac Martin, a professor of urban studies and planning at UC San Diego, Julie Corrales, a policy advocate for the Environmental Health Coalition, and Tau Baraka, an activist and the owner of Imperial Barbershop in San Diego's Encanto neighborhood. The show was produced by Harrison Patino. For additional resources, visit KPBS.org.